0: Well, we've been making our way through the gospel of Luke, and I decided as we got to Luke chapter 11 just to slow down just a little bit, because as Jesus teaches from the first verse down to the 13th verse about prayer, I think we can all admit that prayer in our lives is a deficiency. It's not where it ought to be. We can all admit that the modern church today is not known for its prayer not known for its communion and fellowship with the Lord. And so I thought we were going to take our time to consider the Lord's teaching on prayer so we might learn from the Lord and grow in this vital discipline, this vital practice, this fellowship with our Heavenly Father in prayer. Now, as we've gone through the Lord's prayer, we recognize that it begins with a recognition of God as Father and of the priority of our prayers on the supremacy of God, his glory and his honor, that his name might be revered and that his kingdom may come. We want his will to be done. We want to submit ourselves to God in prayer. So in prayer, our highest and chiefest priority is his praise. Then the question becomes, then what do we ask for ourselves? Most of us, when we think about prayer, we think about asking for things for ourselves. We have a need, and so I pray and ask for that need to be met. And most often, whether in a conservative circle or, or non-conservative circle, when we come before the Lord in prayer, most commonly we are praying for things related to our health, to our wealth, and to our prosperity. We're in a difficult spot. We need a job. We need an income. Uh, I have this disease. I have this affliction. And so, so, Lord, remove this from me and bring me to a place of, of ease, to a place of comfort, to a place of security, and a place of stability. Most often, to our shame, prayers of the Christian church today are, are little different than the paganism and the idolatry that was preached against in the times of the apostles, where people would, would bow before a little statue and, and worship their sun god because they wanted the sun to, to shine down its rays and to, to cause their crops to grow. They would cut themselves and, and worship and offer sacrifice to the to the god of the rain and the clouds so that rain would come and so they'd have a of a bumper crop that year. They would worship and pray to fertility gods because they wanted children and children were so vital to the, to the well-being of the household and to the economy. And so we need more children. And so all these prayers and all these sacrifices, all this idolatrous religion was about our needs, our wealth, our prosperity, our comfort. When you're sick, you better sacrifice because we want to be well. And so in Christianity... The temptation is for us to just just mimic these false religions and look to God as if he's some kind of genie to provide for us so that we could live a life of luxury and of ease and of comfort. But what Jesus is going to teach us here is how we ought to pray for ourselves. And it's not about our wealth, our comfort, nor our prosperity. And it's going to be instructive for us. And what's important for us today is to recognize that if you're here because you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you want to say like the disciples, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me how I ought to pray. Show me what your priorities are in prayer. So when I pray, I'm praying in keeping with your will and with your priorities. And I hope also our attitude here today is not only to learn from our Lord, but is actually to do the things that he teaches us. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a follower of him. He is the master and you are the student. And so what he says, you say, yes, Lord, I hear that. I believe that I will do that. We don't want to leave here from these series of messages and just be hearers only. Oh, that was interesting. I learned a lot about prayer. What we learn here ought to be useful when we're on our knees before God. We say, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to be here only. I'm going to be a doer. I'm going to listen, believe, and obey my Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pray. And so may that be our heart today. Now what we're going to do in Luke chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. And this is a section of the Lord's Prayer where he gives us three things of what we ought to pray for, for ourselves. And so we're going to look at those three things that the Lord instructs us to pray for ourselves. And then I'm going to explain each of those three things. And then at the end of each one, I'm going to give some some practical application, how we can put that into practice in our lives as we come before the Lord in prayer. Even tonight, tomorrow morning, as we pray, what can we learn from here to put into practice immediately? Okay, so three things about prayer and how we ought to pray for ourselves. Number one, he's teaching us here to ask for daily provision, to ask for daily provision. Look back in verse number two. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Okay, the priority there, hallowed be the name of God. May his kingdom come. May his will be done. And then here in verse number three, now give us each day our daily bread. The imagery here of bread brings to mind the people of Israel back in the wilderness wanderings. When God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, They were now in the Sinai Peninsula in the desert without food, without water. And what did God do? Well, God sends manna from heaven. And manna, you know, the name just means what is it? (laughs) What is it? Manna. And so the people ate this manna, but God gave them very clear instructions. I'm only going to provide you manna for today. So in the morning, you go out and you collect manna for that day. Don't save up for tomorrow. Don't save up for next week. Collect it for that day. And for those Israelites who collected more than was necessary for that day, that was a sin before the Lord. When they collected more, what it really was was expressing doubt in the Lord's ability to provide for their needs tomorrow. And for those who collected more than they needed, well, God would ensure that manna went moldy. They couldn't even use it the next day. But on the Sabbath day, They were refrained from going out to collect the manna. And so the day before the Sabbath, they would go out under the instruction of God and collect enough for two days. And that was preserved for the next day. So God is providing for them their daily needs. And the manna was to show them that they are dependent upon the Lord. That as he leads them from the land of bondage into the land flowing with milk and honey, they had to learn dependence upon the Lord each and every day for their needs. And Jesus is saying the same thing. When you pray, say, give us each day our daily bread. God provide my daily needs. It's very similar to what we read in Proverbs chapter 30. Verses eight and nine. It says there, another prayer request. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In that proverb, we have a prayer request to God saying, God, give me what I need. Give me what is necessary. Don't give me too much. Because if we have too much, what's our tendency?" Well, we trust in our wealth, we trust in our security, we trust in our provisions, and we forget the Lord. We're not depending upon him. And if we have too little, we're tempted now to steal, to grumble against God, and we profane his name. And so God, just give me what I need. Give me what is necessary. And so Jesus' instruction to us is the very same instruction. Each day, give me my daily needs. In fact, that word daily, when it says give us each day our daily bread. That word daily in Greek is actually a word that is not used anywhere else. And scholars believe it It was actually coined by the gospel writers. They took two words and kind of mashed them together. And this was common practice. We do the same thing today. You know, you, you have a word that doesn't quite fit. So you take two words and you, you mash them together. And then the two words that they mash together... It can can mean daily, but it can also mean necessary for existence. Give me what is necessary. And I think that it it fits so well here to that context, because when Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread, the word daily is a bit redundant. You're not going to say, give me each day my weekly bread. Give me each day my monthly bread. You have way too much. But each day you're asking for what that day needs. And so give us each day our necessary food, our necessary provision. What I need today, God, to to serve you. What is necessary for my existence? Now this is important for us to to meditate upon. Because I believe not only back in the days of the wilderness wanderings when the temptation was to collect too much manna. But we have the temptation today also to, to collect more than we need to save up for that rainy day. We even have a phrase for it today that's been coined, preppers. I know there are some preppers here among us. And we have to be mindful of what the scriptures say about this kind of preparation. Is our desire to be a prepper, is that... Revealing a lack of trust in God's daily provision of us? Is it revealing a fear that is in our heart of, of what is future and what is unknown? And so I need to take steps to ensure my security and prosperity into the future? Is it motivated by a lack of trust? Is it motivated by fear? If it is, then it's wrong. But I think in today's day and age, we have that tendency to save up, to store up, to be prepared for that rainy day. And here Jesus is teaching us to be dependent upon the Lord each and every day for what we need. Listen to this passage from Lamentations 3. This is from verse 22 to 24. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jeremiah writes these words as Jerusalem was plundered and destroyed. His city, Zion, the city of David, decimated by unbelieving armies. The judgment of God upon his own people. And Jeremiah says, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. My soul hopes in the Lord. He is all I need. He is all I have. His trust is not in chariots or horses in the gates, in the temple, but is upon the Lord. And he can say, Lord, your mercy is everlasting. Your love is everlasting. And the mercies that I need to cope through the times of difficulties today, God, are new this morning. You've given me what I need. Great is your faithfulness. You have bestowed mercy upon me now, even in this time of calamity. And this is important for us because so often we're anxious in this life because we're afraid of what tomorrow will bring or the next day or the next week or the next month or the coming years. And we're like, God, you need to strengthen me now to prepare me for all the problems that are ahead of me. And God's like, no, not going to do that. Each day has its own troubles, he says. So he be anxious about today, not tomorrow. And couple that with the fact that his mercies are new every morning. And so he is not going to give mercy today for tomorrow's troubles. He'll give mercy tomorrow for those troubles. But he's given you mercies that are new every morning to fight today's battles, to persevere in today's trials. And so when we pray and ask God for our daily provision, that daily mercy, the daily love of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we need, we have to do that each and every day. It's not as if you can just pray once at the beginning of the year. God, be merciful to me this year. Okay, got it. Ready to go. I'm equipped. But rather each and every day, he wants us to be dependent upon him for the mercies that we need to get through that Day, and he will provide. Now, as he asks us to give us, or us as a pray, give us each day our daily bread. I think sometimes we have difficulty with this because we are a people who have more than enough. You know, not only do we have enough daily bread, but we have enough bread in one day for a year. Like people are throwing away bread. We don't know what to do with it. And so what does it mean for us living in a prosperous time to depend upon the Lord for our daily bread? And it's important for us to recognize that the provisions here that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about is not just talking about a loaf of bread. The word here, bread, is speaking more about just your food that you intake, although it's part of it. But it's a synecdoche, it's, it's a, something that is, it is, is one element that stands for the whole. It's this idea that we are asking the Lord for what is needful for us to live this day as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know when Jesus said, it is my bread, it is my food to do my Father's will. So you could say, God, give me what is necessary to do your will today. Because this is, this is my food. This is my bread. This is what is necessary for me to do what is pleasing to you. And so God, give me this day what I need to fulfill your purposes. You see, the problem is we live in a day and age where we focus on the physical. We live in a very material world, an atheistic, evolutionary society and so everything is tangible. Everything is material. We saw that in the last few years during COVID-19. So there's a virus. Let's do anything we can to save biological life at all costs. Never mind completely destroying people's relational life, emotional life, spiritual life. Well, that's no matter. As long as they're physically okay. As long as they have a heartbeat, they're living, even though they're in a prison. We take the the most vulnerable people in our society and we'll say, we're going to lock them up for a few years as if that's a good idea. It's awful because there's such a narrow minded focus on only what is physical. And sometimes we can get the same way when we come before the Lord in prayer. Like, what do I pray for? I got everything. I got all my physical needs met. And so we only pray when we're sick. We only pray when we need a job. We only pray when we need money. Because all we're thinking is is the physical. We've been so influenced by our society around us. But the daily bread, the daily provision, this food to do the Father's will reminds us that what we need is the strength and the ability to do what the Father is asking us to do as Christians. He's talking about our souls. Not just what's physical. In John chapter 15, Jesus said that apart from me, you can do nothing. And we're like, well, I can eat apart from Jesus. I can go to work. I can live my life apart from Jesus. And sadly, I confess a number of things I do in my life uh, that I'm not dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's awful, sinful. But when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's there talking about our walk as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, our growth in holiness. Our obedience, the fruit of the believer, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ being the salt and light of the earth. That requires a dependence upon him. That requires daily sustenance. That requires daily strength and wisdom from God. And so give us this day our daily bread so we can obey you. That's what he's speaking about here in this text. Now, Let me draw a few practical applications. I have three of them. We know what it means when he says, give us each day our daily bread. Now, what does that mean for us as we pray tonight, tomorrow morning? Number one, it means that we pray daily. If the Lord is telling us here, when you pray, say, give us each day our daily bread. It means we're praying every day for our daily bread for our needs, for strength to obey the Lord's commands. Every single day we're going to be praying. Unless you like to fast and not have the Lord's strength for certain days of the week. You know, every day we ought to be before the Lord in prayer. And I actually believe that not only ought we to be in prayer every day, but we ought to be in prayer every morning before the day begins. Because when Jesus says, when you pray, say, give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't make sense for you as you lay your head down to sleep on your pillow at night and say, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. I'm really hungry now. It only makes sense in the context of the morning when you wake up as you, as you get dressed, as you get your breakfast, as you have the day before you and you are a Christian ready to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. God, give me what is necessary for me today. I need your help. There's a day before me and I need your strength. So give me my daily bread. Secondly, this is also instructive for us to give thanks regularly. To give thanks regularly. If we are beginning our mornings in prayer and asking God for the daily provisions of that day. Oh God, I need mercy today. God, I need your steadfast love today. God, I need your strength today. God, I need your wisdom today. God, give me what is necessary for me to live a life to, feel, to do your will. Then we will be giving thanks throughout the day for how God is answering that prayer. It's customary for us when we sit down to eat, to pray and thank God for this food. Okay, we do that every time we eat. God, thank you for this food that we're partaking in. Why? Because he's answering this prayer to give us our daily bread. And so we know that we plant, we water, but it's God who causes the growth. And so as we ask for his daily bread, and then as we live our lives, we'll spend our day in thanksgiving saying, God, you answered that prayer. You gave me strength. You gave me mercy. You helped me, Lord. So thank you. So we pray daily. We give thanks regularly. And number three, this instructs us to ask for battle provisions. This phrase, give us each day our daily bread, means we're asking for battle provisions, for battle rations, for supplies, for things to fight the fight of faith. The Christian life, Paul speaks about a life of war, life of a soldier, a laborer. And as we come before the Lord for our daily provisions, we're asking Him to provide what is necessary for the battle of that day. I like how John Piper says it; it's etched in my mind. He talks about prayer being a wartime walkie-talkie. Okay, if you're a soldier and you got time of peace, you're not on the radio for reinforcements. You're not saying, "Hey, we need some more ammo here." You're you're at ease. You're comfort. And then the same is true if we are seeking to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, but our feet are kicked up and we're just at a place of ease. I don't need to grow in holiness today. I think I'm doing quite fine, thank you. Then we won't be on that wartime walkie-talkie saying, Lord, I need your help. I'm running low on ammo. My shield of faith is getting weak. Lord, please help me. And so we're on the phone with that wartime walkie-talkie asking God to provide that battle provision for the day. And this is applicable to all of us. As example, men. Men, as you get up in the morning and you come before the Lord in prayer, you're thinking the battles that are before you that day. God has called you, if you're married, called you to love your wife and to self-sacrifice for her, to wash her with the water of the word so that she would be sanctified. That's hard. That's your day's task before you. You're called to work and to provide for your household. You're called to be not only a provider but a protector. You're called to be a prophet. You're called to be a priest. You're called to intercede for your family. You're called to be an example at the workplace of a man who is serving the Lord Jesus Christ and not working as a mere people pleaser. That people would look upon you and see your your work ethic and see your integrity and say, well, there is a man. And you say, well, it is Jesus Christ working in it through me. And men ought to do this with strength, with leadership, with poise, with gentleness, with meekness. And so, men, as you consider the day's task before you, as you come before the Lord in prayer, you're like, I need that wartime walkie-talkie. I'm going to need some strength today. I feel tired. I feel sick. I feel miserable. And so, Lord, you must help. Same true for women. You have a list of tasks of what it means for you to be faithful, a meek, and a quiet spirit, to be gentle, to be loving, to show respect. If you're married, to, to love and respect your husband, to care for your children. And you know the struggles, you know the battles, you know the difficult conflicts that can emerge in relationships. You know, the battle with with covetousness and with bitterness and with envy. So you need some battle provisions. Oh, Lord, there's a hard day in front of me. I need your help. Men, women, children, even. Children, you must come before the Lord each and every day and ask the Lord for your battle provisions. God has called you to honor and respect your parents. That's not easy. Because you know your parents are not perfect. In fact, your parents sin. And so children, it is hard for you to honor and respect your parents. and, And the devil is seeking to sow seeds of doubt into your heart. And to snatch you away from the truth that you are hearing. The devil wants your soul. And he wants you to grow up. And to abandon the faith, to be a blight upon your parents, to be a blight upon the church, to be a blight upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so children, when you get up in the morning and when you say your prayers, you're asking, God, help me to obey the Lord Jesus Christ today. Give me faith. Help me to grow in maturity. Help me to love my parents. That's a battle. We need battle provisions. And so pray daily, give thanks regularly, and ask for battle provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the first request concerning us in the Lord's prayer. Secondly, look at verse number four. Jesus continues and says, and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Okay, two major requests here. First, forgive us our sins. Second, lead us not into temptation. And we're going to consider forgiveness first. But what's important about the Lord's prayer, as you read all of it, the priority is the glory of God, the reverence and fame of his name and of his kingdom, of his will being done on earth. That's the priority of our prayers. And when it concerns us, The request is, God, keep me dependent upon you each and every day. Help me to rely upon you each and every day. Give me what's needful for me to serve you each and every day. And then secondly, God, deal with my sin. That's it. Help me to depend upon you and deal with my sin. Forgive me. Lead me away from temptation so that I would not sin against you. That's what we ought to be praying for for ourselves. And we think about it, that is our greatest need, because that 's why Jesus Christ came to this earth to deal with our sins so that we would be in fellowship and communion and dependent upon God he didn 't come for your bank account, he didn 't come for your education he didn 't come for your ease and for your comfort, he came to deal with your sin, and he came to bring fellowship with God, a dependence upon God and so he instructs us to pray it 's the same thing. Help me to depend upon God. And then deal with my sin. These are the most important things that we must be praying for. And looking for God to answer and work in our lives. Okay? So let's think about sin. Let's think about forgiveness of sins. When he says, when you pray, say, forgive us our sins. Or forgive me my sins. This means... That not only are we asking each day for our daily bread, but we're asking each day and we're confessing our sins before the Lord. That each day there ought to be confession of sin before the Lord. Now, think about your sin for a moment. And as you think about your own sin, you're likely, if you're willing to entertain the exercise, you're likely thinking about sins in your life that bear consequences that are painful to you. In other words, if if you're prone to anger and your anger has made shreds of your marriage, of your children, of your household, such that now you feel alone and you feel isolated and it's eggshells at home and it's just not good, then likely you think about your anger as being a major problem because you feel the consequence of it. But the sins we hardly think about are other sins where we don't necessarily feel the consequence of them. And there are many sins that we commit called sins of commission. Sins like envy. Sins like lying. Sins like hatred or malice. Sins like greed. And some of these sins we can engage in, we we might not experience the consequences of them, so we think more lightly of them because we have a a selfish way of looking at our sins. But think about how God considers our sins. Not only does he see the sins that have reared its ugly head in your life and caused destruction and ruin, but he sees all your other sins of commission. He sees your pride. He sees your defensiveness. He sees your anxiety and your fear that's unfounded if you have a trust in God. And he also sees your sins of omission. Not as the sins of commission of what you do, that is wrong and contrary to God's law, but he also sees the sins of omission, the things that you don't do that you ought to do. We saw that at the end of the James chapter four. You knew what you ought to do, but you didn't do it. That's a sin. And so how many times are we in a spot where we know we ought to do and we fail to do it? That's sinful. That our Lord Jesus Christ has told us to do it and he's even prompting us by his spirit to do it. And we don't do it. And that is sin. How many times have you been in a conversation where you feel like, oh, I should speak about Christ right now. And then you don't. And you're like, oh, well, missed opportunity. And in fact, it's actually sin. At that moment, likely what's was happening was we were ashamed of Christ. Our loyalty was was more geared towards that relationship or that person or our own self-protection than our loyalty for God and for his truth. And so we weren't loving to our neighbor. We didn't testify about Christ. We were ashamed of the gospel. What a terrible sin. You see, our sins of omission are so heinous in the sight of God because we're actually choosing our loyalties to be for ourselves and for our comfort and our ease rather than obedience to God. And each day, whether through sins of omission or sins of commission, we are incurring a debt before God. Our sins are accumulating before the Lord. And so we're called to ask for forgiveness, to confess our sin and ask him to forgive us. Now, I must admit, and I think you'll agree, that confession is very rare today. That confession in the world is very rare today. That confession in the church is very rare today. So what keeps us from confessing? What is it about our age that confession is so very rare? And let me share with you a few ideas. I think first of all, we just don't have examples of people who confess their sins. You know, you'd be hard pressed to think of a politician who is open and honest about their sin and say, you know, look, the decisions I make affect a lot of people and I blundered it. And I'm sorry, I ruined your life. I'll make it right. I'll 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 take steps. Please forgive me. You don't hear that from politicians. And you don't even hear it from pastors. You don't hear it from church leaders. You don't hear it anywhere in society. We just don't have an example of people confessing their sins. And in fact, in many households, the reason why some kids get so hardened to the gospel is because their parents never confess sin. They see sin in their parents all the time. But mom and dad never confess. And so with no examples of confession, well, they don't confess either. And in fact, they get hardened to the truth of God. And so we don't see an example to us today. Confession is rare just period. Another reason why confession is so rare is because forgiveness is so rare in our society today. Forgiveness is so rare. Think about even a politician who had the courage to confess their sin in a blunder before everybody. Would they be forgiven? Of course not. They have a black mark on them. They would be censored. They would be relegated to nothings, deplorables. You have no voice anymore. You sinned, you're out. There is no forgiveness in our society. And if there's no forgiveness, there is no confession. Same is true in a church. Same is true as a household. I guarantee you, if there is no forgiveness in your household, there will be no confession. Who's going to confess where there's no forgiveness? Who's going to confess when there's only judgment? We tempted rather to lie and to cover it up. And so because forgiveness is so rare, then confession is so rare. Another reason why confession is neglected today is because it's rare even to consider sin as sin. You don't confess if you have a disorder. You don't confess if you have a disability. You don't confess if you have this genetic trait. You don't confess if if you're this way because of some other influence or because of this or that. You don't confess that. That's not sin. And so today we explain away sin as a disorder, as an anomaly, as something that just is nothing to do with my own moral compass. And so therefore there's nothing to confess because there's no sin anymore. Another reason why confession is so rare is because considering sin seems to us so morbid, so depressing, and so discouraging. Oh, when I think about my sin, it just gets me down. Why would I want to do that? Let's just let's just move on. Yeah, mistakes were made. We'll move it to the side, and and we'll be happy. We'll move on. We'll persevere. We'll do it better next time. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about my mistakes. I don't want to think about my sin. It's so depressing. And so again, there's no confession because we never think about our sin. Now, all of these reasons that keep us from confession and that keep us from asking for forgiveness are all remedied by one solution, to consider the miracle of forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we understand that his forgiveness comes to us when he came to this earth to die in the place of sinners and rise again three days later. And when he gives that forgiveness full and free to all those who come to him. And it came and in his death is, is not for those who are well. Okay, if you're here today and you're not a sinner, well, Jesus Christ didn't come for you. You can say that from scripture. He came for sinners. He came for those who are sick. He didn't come to remedy your disorders. He didn't come to fix your genetics. He came to deal with your sin. And so if you are here today and you are a sinner, then there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the assurance, not only of this text, but in 1 John 1, 9, he says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We are told in scripture, when we ask according anything, according to Jesus' will, we know that he hears us and we have His have that request. And he says, if you confess your sin to me, I will forgive you. That's my will. And my will is for you to ask for forgiveness. So when we ask Christ for forgiveness, we know we will have it. Isn't that a great confidence? For us not to hide our sin, not to cover it up, not to sweep it under the rug, not to say, I'm going to try harder, I'll do better next time. No, confess our sin before the Lord because there we have forgiveness, full and free because of Jesus Christ. And the logic is clear. If you don't confess, you aren't forgiven. He says, confess your sin and you will be forgiven. Now, another question I was considering as I meditated upon this portion of scripture, and maybe it's a question you have as well, is is why is it so important for us to confess our sins daily? If Jesus died for our sins on the cross, and when he died he said it is finished. Are we forgiven or are we not? I thought when you when you became a Christian, when you turned from your sin and, and put your faith and trust and committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you were forgiven. Past, present, future. You are forgiven. And so why would Jesus now say, Each day, confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. Doesn't seem to make sense. And I think the reason why it might not make sense to us or some of us is because we have a a faulty assumption of what is salvation. Salvation is not a transaction where if you come and do this, he'll, he'll give you forgiveness and then he'll go that way and you go that way and you live your life. You'll go to heaven one day when you die. You got your fire insurance. You got your get out of jail free card. You're you're set. You're saved. But salvation, eternal life, is a relationship with the Father. Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you and your son whom you have sent. That's eternal life, a relationship with the Father. And forgiveness works out in the context of that relationship. It is it is based on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, but it but it carries its way out and works its way out in a relationship as we're in communion with the Father. It's very similar to a marriage covenant. You know, imagine a couple and, and a wife is been bit annoyed at her husband because it's been like twenty-five, thirty years, and it's like, you never say that you love me. And the husband says, Well, that's because I said it back on our wedding day. I said the vows. Nothing's changed. I'll I'll let you know if it has or if it does. Of course, I love you. And we we, we laugh at that. Because we know a marriage is not just the, the initial vows on that wedding day, it works its way out in a lifelong covenant. And so too is our salvation. We're not just forgiven one time in the past, that forgiveness is worked out in our lives as we daily confess our sins to God and receive the forgiveness based upon the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look also what it says. Verse number four. Forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It's interesting. This request to forgive our sins is predicated based upon our forgiveness towards others. You notice what it says there? Forgive us our sins for... Or because we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Okay, so people have sinned against us. This is a debt that has been incurred. And so we forgive that debt. We forgive that sin. And because we do that, now we're asking the Father to forgive us. The logic seems to be saying here that if you're unwilling to forgive, then neither will your Father forgive you. And that's not just an inference from this text. It's stated clearly in other portions of scripture. In Matthew 18, you can, I don't have time to read it all, but you can read it this afternoon if you wish. There's the parable there of the unforgiving servant. The master forgives him an incredible debt that he could never repay. And then he refuses to forgive a small debt that is owed to him. When the master hears about that, he exacts upon him that same debt you are not forgiven, locks him up until he pays the last cent, which he'll never will. And then Jesus says these words at the end of Matthew 18. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Isn't that incredible? And God would say that. In Luke six thirty seven. It says there, forgive and you will be forgiven. Implying that if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. In Matthew 6, 14, listen to what Jesus says there. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. In other words, you have no reason to expect God will answer your prayer for your forgiveness if you will not forgive others. not that incredible? So Jesus says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now we recognize just like confession is rare, forgiveness is rare today too. And what keeps us from forgiving others? I want you to think about that. What keeps us from forgiving others? There's a few reasons I can think of. One, when we don't forgive, it reveals that we think we're worthy of forgiveness and others aren't. If we expect the Lord to forgive us and we won't forgive others, then there's something we're saying about our own worth. that the other person doesn't have. I'm worthy to be forgiven, but they aren't. It also reals if we we don't forgive, that we have a low view of our own sin. And we view the fact that God can forgive us, but we can't forgive others, is because, Lord, you don't know the large debt that they have. Okay, for you to forgive me, I understand, I'm not perfect, but come on, that's different than this. And so we have a low view of our own sin. We have a high view of somebody else's sin. And we don't have a low view of Christ's atonement. Now think about how awful it is to think little of our own sin. If you think little of your own sin, you will, by consequence you will necessarily think little of, of Christ. You will think that him forgiving your sin is actually not that big a deal. You know those, those tears that he cried in the garden of Gethsemane. When he sweat like drops of blood from his brow. When nothing was fearful to him, but yet he was in agony and distress as he considered suffering the wrath of God for sinners like you, that that was a walk in the park for him. Your forgiveness came at such great cost because the debt that you owed before God was unpayable. And so never think lightly of your own sin lest you have an unforgiving spirit. And God won't forgive you. Also, if we don't forgive others, it can reveal a wrong view of justice. Where oftentimes we want to ensure the guilty party gets their just desserts. I'm sure you've been there before. Someone asks for your forgiveness and you're like, I don't think so. You don't know what you did to me. You don't know the pain that you cause. You need to suffer. You need to pay. There will be justice here. And so I can't forgive you because forgiveness is seen as a skirting around of justice. And if I forgive you, you're just going to do it again. And so there must be retribution. Guilt must be paid. And just know if that is your attitude and that keeps you from forgiving others, then God will give you that same attitude to you. And when you go to confess your sin to God, he's like, no, justice must be done. You must taste the consequence of your sin, you unforgiving servant. And also, if we don't forgive, it reveals a selfishness where we withhold a good thing from others that we would desire for ourselves. So don't be selfish. Don't have a wrong view of justice. Don't have a low view of your sin. Don't think you're worthy or somehow different than somebody else. Forgive and forgive quickly, lest you won't be forgiven. Now, some practical applications of this request to forgive us our sins. Okay, again, I have three. Number one, confess your sin daily. If we have to ask each morning for our daily provision, to be dependent upon the Lord for our daily needs, then we ought to pray daily to confess our sins because we sin every day. And if it's fitting to begin the day with asking God to provide for our daily needs, it's also fitting for us to end the day to confess and to make sure that there's no sins that we're going to sleep on that night. If you practice family worship, and if you're here, I encourage you all to do. Integrate even confession during times of family worship. If it's been a difficult day for the family it's been a difficult day with, with tensions raised or, or words shared that are not right, then use that time of confession. Number two, confess with detail. Confess with detail. So confess your sin daily and confess with detail. Don't just throw up the, Lord, forgive me my sins today. Lord, I'm a bad person. I sinned today. Yep, forgive those. Move on. Be specific. Lord, forgive me for my harsh words towards my mother today and how I disrespected and dishonored her. Lord, forgive me for my wandering eye, how I continued to look when I knew I shouldn't have. Lord, forgive me for my laziness and lethargy at work, for taking a much longer break than I ought have and stealing from my employer. God, forgive me from a heart that feels like I'm deserving of more than you have given to me. Lord, help me. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for my desire to want recognition. And I talked about myself too much today. Forgive me, Lord. Be specific with our confession. And number three, keep short accounts. Confess in daily, confess with detail and keep short accounts. Don't go to bed without dealing with your sin. If you have sinned against someone, then you go and you make it right. If someone has sinned against you, then you lovingly confront them. Deal with it. Keep short accounts. Don't let sin pile up and thereby bitterness and a host of other sins that are going to emerge from that pile. I liken it to taking the the garbage out. If every day you're taking the garbage out and rather than taking it out and putting in the bin and then taking it to the curb, you take that garbage and you just chuck it into the living room, make a pile in the corner. You, know, you, you do that for a short time. So what's that smell? I don't know. Why, why, is the, why, is the, why is this puddle of goo like leaking on the floor? What is that? Why are the flies in here? You know, it's, it gets disgusting. Your house is rotting. It's, it's, it's awful. But this is how so many of us live because we don't confess our sin. We don't deal with it. And we don't realize we have a, have a house that is not a, a haven, not a refuge, not a place of tranquility and peace. But it's a, it's a garbage dump. And so the point is take out the trash, have short accounts, confess your sin. Grant forgiveness. The third thing Jesus asks us to pray for is at the end of verse 4 when he says, And lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, he's telling us here to ask to avoid temptation, and by avoiding temptation, thereby avoiding sin. The confession of our sin and the forgiveness of our sins are a reminder that sin carries with it a penalty. And so often that becomes our primary focus. There's a penalty to sin. I don't want that penalty. It's unpleasant, the consequences of sin. And so God, forgive me, forgive me my sin, so I don't have that consequence. Good. But very rarely do we ask God to to free us from the power of sin. Like God, I want to be free from temptation. I want you to lead me away from it because I don't want to sin. I not only want your forgiveness and the penalty of sin removed, but I want sin's power removed. I don't want to sin. You know, I see this so often in men and women who struggle with sexual sin, look at pornography, and, and, and they're, they're zealous to want forgiveness because there's there's such guilt and there's such shame and they continue to go back to it again and again and again and so, so forgiveness becomes so desirable. But I find that it's a rarity to see that same desire, that same zeal to break the power of sin and to pray, Lord, lead me away from temptation because sometimes we want to remove the consequence and not necessarily remove the sin. But here Jesus is saying, "We want to remove the sin, we want to get rid of it." You know, there's a, an underestimation of temptation today. An underestimation of temptation. We've forgotten that temptation is alluring, it, that, that, it, that it promises, that it, that it promises joy and comfort and, and satisfaction, that it's charming, that it's flattering. And we underestimate temptation by thinking, oh yeah, when temptation comes, I'll spot it. I'll see it. I can avoid it. And we're foolish. And we walk right into it. And not only do we underestimate temptation, but we overestimate our own strength and our own ability, our own maturity. And we say, yeah, I know I'm weak in one respect, but... I can handle temptation. I can watch that. I can go there. I can hang out with those people. I'll be okay because I'm mature. Not knowing in underestimating temptation and overestimating overestimating our own maturity, we're actually living like foolish people. If you are mature, you will never stand in temptation. You'll flee it. Maturity, going to sexual sin again and pornography... Maturity is not sitting before your computer at night by yourself, browsing the internet and saying, I have the strength not to click where I shouldn't click. That's not maturity. That's foolishness. You're playing with fire. You're, you're, you're an idiot. You're doing something that is, that is incredibly harmful for your own soul. That's like telling someone who's a recovering alcoholic, well, if you're really mature, you'd walk right into that bar. And you'd smell those fumes and you'd sit down and, and you would just hobnob with all the other patrons there. Of course you would never tell that to a recovering alcoholic. Maturity for them would be to avoid all those establishments. Because they know how weak they are and they know how strong the temptation is. And so maturity means I will flee temptation. And I will pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Ephesians 5, 3 says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. One's translation puts it, not even a hint. If you are mature, you will flee sin. You will flee temptation because you won't underestimate temptation and you won't overestimate your maturity. You'll pray, Lord, lead me from temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Now, some practical applications for this request. To lead us not into temptation. Again, I have three. The first one is this. To remember that confession is not repentance. Remember that confession is not repentance. If you were going through the Lord's Prayer, you might assume that after we ask for forgiveness, we're done dealing with our sin. I've been forgiven. As if if I confess my sin... I've repented of my sin, but confession of sin is part of repentance. It's not all of it. Repentance includes not only the confession of our sin, but the hating of our sin, the grieving over our sin, the forsaking of our sin, taking steps to go the opposite way rather than towards sin. That's all included in repentance. It's a change of direction. And so when we pray, Lord, forgive me, do not neglect to say, and Lord, lead me not into temptation. Keep this sin from me. I desire to repent. And so in our confession, as I mentioned before, a young man saying, forgive my harsh words towards my mother. And he can conclude that and say, and guard my heart from selfishly wanting my own way from despising the authority of my mother in my life, this gift that you have given to me. Oh God, lead me away from this temptation to think more highly of myself than I ought and that I would speak so harshly to my mother. Lead me not into temptation. Guard my heart. And so confession is not repentance. Secondly, this instructs us to pray before temptation. To pray before temptation. We are prone to cry out to the Lord for help when we feel like we're helpless. And so I haven't tried to avoid temptation and now I'm smack dab in the middle of it and I'm waist deep in sin and now, Lord, help me. I've got me into a bind. I'm into a mess. You must save me. Rather than asking for his help before we fall into temptation, lead me not into temptation. And so at the beginning of the day, you know what you'll be tempted to do. You know because of the previous day and last month. You'll know the sins that you'll be tempted to commit that day. So Lord, lead me not into temptation. Think about a, a man who's on his way to work and he's, he drives a, a, a pathetic car. And uh, not that anyone here has a pathetic car, but this man has a pathetic car and he's driving to work and he wants to take a shortcut. And this shortcut would take him on a country road uh, in front of this farmer and, and there's, there's ruts, there's mud and so he gets stuck. And so he asks that farmer to help him out. Farmer pulls him out, heads on his way, gets to work. He's a bit late, car's full of mud. Tuesday, goes through the same shortcut, gets stuck again. Wednesday, gets stuck again. Thursday, get stuck again. Farmers pulling them out every day. And the farmer says on Thursday, you know, you might want to take a different way to work. Light bulb moment. Okay, that's a good idea. You know, and so often we're like that. We never think about God leading us away from temptation. We think, okay, I'll do the same thing today. Oh, sin. Oh, same thing today. Boom. Sin Again. It's like, how many times does a farmer need to pull us out before he realize that road is not a good road to go on? Lord, don't lead me down that road. Lead me in the way of righteousness. If I need to take the long route, God, then put me on the long route so I can be free from sin. And so pray before temptation. Number three, seek to answer your own prayer. Seek to answer your own prayer. This is wise advice that I've heard And that I pass on to you. It's quite straightforward and it's applicable not only to lead us not into temptation, but for all these prayers for ourselves. You know, you can imagine getting up in the morning. God, give me my daily needs today. And then you crawl back into bed. It's like, that's not not how prayer works. Okay, man is not going to appear on your bed. When we say, God, give me my daily needs We get up and we work. Trusting the Lord will use our work and our labors to provide. And so when we ask the Lord here to lead us not into temptation. We then step forward and we act. And we work. We make wise choices. We submit ourselves to his word, to his rule, to his law and his authority. And we seek to live our lives depending upon his strength that he will provide. And so seek to answer your own prayers. If you pray that the Lord would forgive you and to keep you from sin, then take steps to keep yourself from sin. Trust the Lord will give you strength and wisdom to do that. Now, as we come to the end of these requests, to give us our daily provision, to forgive us our sins and to lead us away from temptation. The challenge for you now is to say, or for me to say to you, will you commit each day this week to begin it in prayer and to bring these things before the Lord will you in your place at your time that you have chosen if you haven't do that and come before the Lord each day in prayer and say Lord I need my daily provisions I need my battle provisions Lord I need your mercies today new mercies are needed today Lord Are you going to confess your sin regularly? Are you going to keep short accounts? Are you going to obey Christ? And are you going to ask him to lead you away from temptation? Are you going to work to not only pray to deliver yourself from sin's penalty, but also from its power? And will you commit yourself to do that? And if we all commit ourselves to following Jesus Christ in this regard, then we can give thanks for the work that he is going to do among us. Even now. God delights in his people. And he is pleased with the praying people. A dependent people. And so let's come before our Lord daily in prayer together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for your word and these instructions of our Lord. Oh God how we desire to obey him. I pray that you would give us your spirit. Lord, to cause us to walk according to your statutes and ways. Oh God, may we enjoy this time of communion together with you in prayer. May we confess our sins knowing that we have forgiveness in Christ. Oh God, may you lead us away from temptation and provide for us each day our daily needs. That we might accomplish your will that you have for us. Oh God, do us do this. Again, for your honor, for your glory, for the sake of your name and for the advance of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.